If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pod for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pod for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions, which is me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am, as always, your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guests are Aliyah Shimmy, the executive director of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministries, and Rabbi Dan Kamen of Congregation B'nai Amuna. We talked to Aliyah and Rabbi Kamen about our new Afghan neighbors, what we can do to help them, and how we all can't wait for the first Afghan restaurant in Tulsa. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that restaurant. Let's get on it, people. Enjoy. We are very excited to have both Rabbi Dan Kamen from Congregation B'nai Amuna and Aliyah Shimi, my good friend, Executive Director of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. On Did I say Dan's not pod. your good friend? I'm, not, Listen, I'm, I'm just a friend, I, I don't not wanna, a good friend. I don't want to speak for Rabbi Kamen about our relationship. Wait, he wants to point. claim you as his yeah, I'll claim yeah. you. What's your choice? Yeah. Like, politically, he might not want to declare publicly that we are friends. I declare. So, I hereby. Uh, he I hereby I declare. declare. Okay. He declares. All right. But we're not here to talk about who loves me more. We're here to talk about our new Afghan neighbors who are being, I don't know what the right verb is, but sent to us. Resettled. 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 That's a much better word than sent. Yes. But can you, for our listeners, either one of you, just remind us why these Afghan families are being resettled and why the number of and why Oklahoma is getting the amount they're getting. Hmm. It's an interesting question, and <laughs> maybe Ali and I can uh, go back and forth on this one. Sure. I don't know if you sure. heard, Jesse and Chris, but there was a war um, in Afghanistan. Did you guys hear about that? I thought that was over a long time ago. Mm. 
you and most Americans. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. Obviously, the, the current refugee crisis stems from the fact that uh, America was involved in an extended conflict in Afghanistan for 20 years, or nearly 20 years. And in, I guess, late, late July, early August, uh, with the decision to withdraw American presence from Afghanistan, we've seen an influx of Afghan uh, refugees arriving to the United States, uh, many of whom sought to uh, to leave uh, or to flee immediately before or just as um, the United States was uh, withdrawing its, its presence. From my understanding, we have evacuated 124,000 from Afghanistan. And again, from my understanding, we have roughly 70,000 of those stateside here in the United States already at military bases, 35,000 of those have already been distributed amongst the eight now agencies that are resettling refugees within the United States that have the federal contracts with, which we are so grateful that B'nai Amuna is our second organization in the state of Oklahoma that is able to do that. Prior to them doing this this year, it was only Catholic Charities that was able to resettle um, refugees in the state of Oklahoma. So yay, B'nai Amuna, we're, we're thrilled. And so um, we still have an additional 35,000 people who are waiting to be um, distributed amongst those groups to be resettled into the state. From my last conversation yesterday, I believe we have roughly 27 individuals, something like that in Tulsa. We have about seven families in Oklahoma City. Last I heard, it was closer to 20, but it could be 27 by now. Yeah. Um, who have arrived into Tulsa. So, you know, the refugee system is a really interesting kind of mechanism. If you go back 100 years to how did people immigrate to the United States, there wasn't a refugee system per se, but there was lots of chain migration or chain immigration. My cousin lives in Tulsa, so I'm going to come live in Tulsa, or I'm going to sponsor. There's family sponsorship. There's all these networks. 1975, the last time the United States faced a major refugee crisis, the end of the Vietnam War, was the last time we saw a major overhaul in the refugee system. Um, and there were other steps along the way. I think 1945 was another kind of critical moment for the restructuring of these efforts, all of which led to the to the system at play where there are agencies or, or organizations that have a direct contract with the State Department, and they have affiliates all over the country. Those affiliates have every year resettled refugees because there are always refugees needing resettlement. Um, and the number of refugees, the number of cases being resettled or individuals being resettled is a number that is determined by the president at the time. That presidential determination has a real impact on the infrastructure, the ability for organizations to service refugees and make space to um, to bring people into, into relationship. This year, was always going to be a very big year for refugees, no matter what. Long before the presidential, um, long before the Afghan uh, refugee crisis, partly because of the change in presidential administration and the number, the previous administration's number of refugees was fifteen thousand, and the Biden administration, I think it's one hundred and twenty-five or one hundred and sixty-five thousand uh, refugees, meaning all refugee more. resettlement agencies were already bracing for an onslaught, trying to figure out how they would 
operate. And in many ways, it's knowing that that was in the pipeline is what brought the synagogue into the conversation six months ago to say, there are going to be refugees coming to this country, and what can we be doing to serve them? And the accident was that a refugee crisis broke out in the middle of that doing that work. And we're so grateful that that led to this, to where we have B'nai Amuna to be able to help resettle. Speaking with Catholic charities, they, you know, since they've been doing this for decades, they say normally they resettle somewhere between two to 300 individuals over the span of a year. So the numbers that we've heard currently is about 800 to Catholic charities and roughly 50, am I correct? Yeah. I came in mm-hmm. to B'nai Amuna, and that's to Tulsa. So in Oklahoma City, they're getting a little over 1,000 in Oklahoma City. So those are just some of the numbers. And normally, you know, it would take the span of the year to resettle that amount of people. And they're trying to resettle them in a much quicker period of time. And I know that we've had some conversations with the governor and um, he has been asked by the State Department to see if they could take on, you know, four or 500 more for Tulsa and several hundred more for Oklahoma City. And we're already trying to figure out how we're going to house the 800 plus that we've got coming into Tulsa with the housing crisis that we already have for our Tulsa residents. And so um, it's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a challenge. Speaking of the process, can you talk a little bit about the vetting process that refugees have to go through? I know that, I mean, I've already seen editorials about people concerned about refugees coming to Tulsa. I mean, we see them every time there's any media about refugees coming to Tulsa. But yeah, can sure. you talk a little bit about the vetting process? Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, and maybe this is a general comment, that's hard to talk about refugees in the moment is because there's like a before and after. The system is designed for there not to be a crisis. Or it is critical work that is when people are needing to be resettled because they are refugees. But it is not built for a world where there are 30,000 people living on military bases waiting for um, apartments uh, around the country. So the the process as it's unfolding is hard to speak about right now as certainly this X, Y, and Z is what's happening. This is the vetting process. In general, uh, it's a very difficult process to be a refugee to this country. And the people who are admitted under um, refugee status, who, who are resettled through resettlement and placement agencies, that's what that's that first 90 days work that Catholic Charities has been doing for many years. That's the essential work that the synagogue will be doing, the first 90 days of care. There's also another organization in town, YWCA, which provides refugee services for the first five years of, of an arrival's uh, life in Tulsa. It's in Tulsa. In normal world, if you've made it here, you've gone through many hoops, many checks, many ways in which the system has operated and has um, and can kind of guarantee on both ends what what's happening. Um, in crisis, things shift a little bit. Alia, do you have a sense of how things have been shifting? I've been doing, you know, this work with refugees when we looked at, you know, during the Iraq war and with the Syrian refugees and the Burmese that have been coming in. So, you know, when we looked at our Syrian refugees, typically they migrate, you know, they leave their country, they flee and they go to a UNHCR camp. And normally they're in that camp somewhere between three to five years. 
and they're vetted over a very long period of time by multiple agencies. It's not just one agency, it's multiple agencies that vet them. Those, that particular group, the refugee group, is probably the most vetted group that comes into the United States, whereas students or business owners are not as vetted as much as refugees that come into this group. And so typically, that would normally be the process. They would be vetted at the UNHCR camps. And then once everything has gone through and they filed for their documentation and they have documentation in hand, and then they come stateside. That's typically the procedure that they would follow. In this case, um, they've kind of had to speed up the process to be able to evacuate them out of the country just because we've, we're seeing what's going on. However, most of these people that are being evacuated are people who have been aiding our allies, aiding our country and aiding our allies. And they've already been vetted because they were already on the ground providing services for both the U.S. and the allies. And so they have gone through multiple vetting processes as well. Um, one gentleman that I picked up this Tuesday and I needed to take him to the dentist, one of our new Afghan neighbors. He's Afghan special forces, 28 year old gentleman. His father is one of the commanders of the forces. He had to leave behind his wife, his five year old son and his two year old daughter. And so here I am driving him to the dentist to get dental work done. And they're on the phone and, and listening to the conversation he's having with his wife, that the Taliban's been coming and finding them every place they're hiding, looking for him. You know, it was just gut-wrenching to hear this conversation and how he got so upset and teary-eyed in the backseat of my car. It's, it's really rough work, but I'm so grateful that we're able to help our new friends pick up the pieces of their lives and try and put them back together. What can people do to help all the different organizations? I know furniture is needed. I know clothes are needed. I know money is needed. Like, who needs what where? Locally, we've got our two agencies, which have a set of responsibilities to fulfill for the arrivals. And those responsibilities, again, they last for those first 90 days or so. They involve providing housing and furnishings and all of the uh, the material needs of of coming to a new place, but also many of the social needs um, that are also necessary. Enrolling in services, uh, knowing how to get your kids uh, registered for school or for the the particular tasks that you have to accomplish. One way to think about it is that if you were moving to Tulsa and you had a cousin who lived here, think about all the things you'd call your cousin to have them help you figure out what to do, right? How do I get the internet hooked up? Or how do I, where do I go shopping? Or what does is, what is cultural orientation look like? I'm thinking about us as cousins of these new arrivals, and all of those services have to be provided. That's a lot of work, certainly with 800 coming or with 50 coming, because you have to um, meet the individual needs, and every individual who comes has a, has a different set of needs. That being said, those needs are often particular to the family that arrives. You can We can secure, or we, we can't secure 850 individual homes, but Every home will have a different set of needs. A family of 11 versus a family of one are different cases. 
So what we are asking and what uh, Catholic Charities is asking and the way kind of we're both preparing is um, the assembly of lots of resources, the collection of goods. Uh, Catholic Charities is a warehouse space. The synagogue will soon have a warehouse space where we are collecting and, and posting what we are in need of at any one time. We need beds. We need pillows. We need X or Y or Z, um, and those material goods are are essential in accomplishing the work and 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 the the in kind donations that that come forward for refugee resettlement is really how the program is built to operate. Um, used couches, used tables. Similarly, um, if you happen to own or be in relationship with a rental property, identifying that property and making it available or at least um, quasi-available is a useful resource to have at the ready. It's not that uh, an agency can rent it right now and start paying rent to hold it because, because again, we don't know if it's going to be needed. We don't know if there's going to be someone to house that place or or to occupy that space. However, knowing it's available means when Catholic Charities or the synagogue learns of our new who's coming next, we can begin the process of of making sure those those the resources are allocated in the right way. Finally, all of this work requires people's hands, sorting goods in warehouses, folding clothes, washing those clothes, driving people to and from appointments, uh, appointments, just as Alia mentioned she did, was it yesterday? Um, Tuesday. Tuesday. So there's that work is important work. Having people available to do that support work and to navigate those systems, that's going to be a, a, a critical function. That being said, when you are available or when someone is available, there might not be an opportunity at that exact moment, but uh, but there is plenty of work to be done. One of the things I know Catholic Charities is doing and we're doing is trying to collect all the resources we can, volunteer hour commitments and a community partner efforts and and everything in that in that vein to to allow for it. For the synagogue itself, there's a email address, refugees at um, which we are asking people to direct at the moment until we can get our website up and updated and running to, to even collect even more information. And at Catholic Charities, they have a central website where they are um, collecting information for um, all of the services that I've, that I've asked, that, that I've mentioned in this. We're one of the support agencies, like I said, Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry is. So as Rabbi Kamen said, them and Catholic Charities will be providing that initial support for the first 90 days. And in our efforts to help them, uh, TMM has contacted all of our houses of worship that may have buses, vans, shuttles, things like that. So we can get um, families transported to and from doctor's appointments, to and from the grocery store, to and from, you know, whatever it is. Um, I know that our friends are going through cultural orientation classes from 1230 to 230, Monday through Thursday, to learn um, very quickly about how life is different in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the things that they need to do to be able to be up and running. We are collecting um, new clothing and some used clothing as well, and we've partnered with a couple of different agencies to be able to transport our new neighbors to um, Fellowship Congregational UCC or to Sophisticated Seconds, um, a couple of families at a time to be able to safely, for them to be able to shop, for them to have their own agencies of picking up whatever clothes they like. So we have 
new school uniforms, shoes, house slippers, coats, whatever it is. And so we're going to need a lot of volunteers to help shelve all these shoes and clothing and things like that. We've had people um, donating gift cards. That way we can give them to these families so they can go to Target or Walmart or wherever and they can go shopping for themselves. Um, we've connected multiple food agencies together to be able to help them with their dietary needs, trying to connect people who do community gardens to be able to raise some of the herbs and spices and things like that that they might use in their type of cooking. So connecting them that way, connecting to some of the social integration pieces. So, um, you know, when I went by to go pick them up at their location downtown, the families were just sitting outside just on the bench in front of the hotel and these little bitty kids are sitting there. Well, it's downtown. There's not a yard for them to play in. There's not anything for them to do. So if we can get some people who would be more than willing to spend a couple of hours with them and just drive them around Tulsa or just take them to the park or, you know, anything like that. And of course, there's going to be background checks. Of course, that's all going to be taken care of. We're going to make sure everybody's safe. But your time, talent is and treasure are, are the things that we're, we're telling people. So when it comes to furniture donation, we've been um, directing everybody to Catholic Charities, but we want to direct people to B'nai Amuna's website so um, we can make sure that we um, get all the furnishings that they need, whether it's couches, beds, tables, chairs, whatever it is, whether they're new or gently used. Um, this morning, I drove to Oklahoma City and picked up a cargo van full of like 150 boxes of diapers and wipes and baby bathtubs and things like that, that was donated by two different agencies in Oklahoma City. So everybody's coming together to help our new neighbors. And it's just so heartwarming to see some of the other cities around the United States um, aren't, they're having some protests, they're having some unrest over this. And I'm so grateful that in our state, in Oklahoma, we haven't seen any of this yet. At least I haven't seen any of it. Have you gentlemen seen anything of that? There's just that one, that one state representative, right? It is what it is. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't even remember his name, but I assume he, he said something. Well, you know, we don't need to remember his name. Right. And he's he's that way. He's just an equal opportunity hater. He's the same yeah. one that, you know, made the comments about uh, people wearing the Star of David for vaccines yes. and, yeah. you know, so. believes that Imam and Chassi is a suit wearing jihadi. So, you know, he's excluded from the rest of Oklahoma. All right. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the th one of the things I would say is... Um, for people to think about how to involve themselves, yes, there are going to be all these direct opportunities to do individual work for the programs that currently exist or are currently operating. But for me, I think about how the synagogue itself got involved in uh, helping and serving refugees. And that story started five years ago where we felt a call to serve our neighbors, to serve new arrivals, and we decided to create a program teaching English as a second language for refugee mothers who were in primary childcare relationships. So oftentimes when um, refugees arrive uh, to an, a new country, to the United States, one member of the household typically the father, goes out and gets a job to earn a living for the family, and uh, a mother is left at home in a primary childcare re relationship, oftentimes living amongst language speakers and cultural in a, in a, in a cultural world that is um, homogenous uh, for them, uh, meaning not much opportunity to learn English, not much opportunity to gain the skills necessary um, or, or, or further the skills necessary to navigate the country. So we created a 
ESL program, which offered childcare alongside the class, um, the class offerings itself. We've been running that program for five years with 30 to 40 students a year um, who have enrolled and, and have brought us into relationship with, um, with refugees directly. That was a partnership with Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities, when they were bringing new arrivals, would say, hey, you want ESL? Here's one option. It's what the synagogue is offering. And therefore, we became in relationship, gained skills, and were able to, to work through an initiative on our own, in our own building, using our own resources to create something that was useful and meaningful to refugee families. As Alia has mentioned, there are tons of parallel opportunities here with a large number of people um, arriving. And I would encourage every organization that wants to do something that wants to do it in the name of the organization itself, because I think there are many faith communities, many nonprofits that want to do things in their own name to think exactly that way. What is the skill set? What is the what is the gap? What is the thing that your organization can fulfill? And in that way, be a supporting agency or a supporting partner of a resettlement agency. That's a, a really critical part of making all of this work um, is having lots of people doing little parts of the work. And so I, I share that as an example for folks to think about um, who want to get involved maybe on a more ambitious level or a more full-scale level to, to really think about what is the project they might want to take on. And, and, and we'd be delighted to think through and partner and, and kind of brainstorm together um, to come up with some of those ideas. A lot of people who I've spoken to um, think that this is just a sprint. We went to the airport. We welcomed them. Yay! You know, and that's great. Welcome, everybody. I came in on a flight um, last Saturday. My flight connected through Houston. A family of nine got on board, mother, father, and seven children. And when we got off the plane um, here in Tulsa, when we landed, um, All Souls' amazing team led by um, Rick Gibbons was there and like 20 plus people wearing welcome shirts. Um, everybody was in the airport. It was just wonderful, just really heartwarming um, for me to see how they were welcoming our new neighbors. It was just awesome to see that. And so, yes, that's great work right at the beginning, but we'd like to think of this as a marathon, right? There are new neighbors and um, they're, as I said, they're picking up the pieces of their lives and they're trying to put them together. We have to remember that some, a lot of them left family members behind, like this gentleman. He's left his wife and his two young children behind, his mother, father, siblings. They've all been left behind. And so we also have to understand that there's quite a bit of trauma that they're coming with. So if you have social workers, if you have therapists in your congregations or people you know who are willing to help work with them, that could be something. You know, doing social events, we're working with TU Student Body. On Sunday, they're going to come help us move offices and offices full of new clothing, and they're putting welcome baskets together to be able to deliver to some of our new friends, right? They're putting hygiene packets together. We're working with TU's law clinic to be able to do the immigration piece for them. Because once they come, we they need to change their status. And most of the time, they're asylum cases. And so TU's law clinic is going to be taking that piece on. And we're going to be working direct, TMM will be working directly with TU Law to be able to help provide those services. And so if you have attorneys who are willing to do some pro bono work, and it's and it's going to be a long haul, right? It's, it's not just 
two months, three months, it's a year, two years, three years, you know, having, having brunches and picnics at your house of worship and welcoming our new neighbors, right? Welcoming them to Tulsa with open arms. And that's, you know, a wonderful way to do that. Considering that we have two Jews, a Catholic, and a Muslim on this podcast, and the organizations involved are Catholic Charities, a a synagogue, and an interfaith organization, we should talk about the, I would say, religious and cultural aspects of this. Like, why are, especially, like, you know, half of this podcast are Jews talking about why it's important to help refugees. We should say why that is. And, I wonder why, right? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, every single one of our faiths, every yes. single faith, has a tenet of helping your neighbor, helping the needy, helping the refugee. And so, who better to talk about that than our dear rabbi, right? <laughs> and so, we're called by God to be able to help those in need. So, lovingly helping our new neighbors. Pass the ball over to our <laughs> rabbi and. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about Oklahoma is it's one of the few places in the world where most of the indigenous people in Oklahoma also have a story of displacement and resettlement. Those who have the longest history in the place we find ourselves share maybe the most difficult story about where we live. From them to me— and my own personal story, and to many, many stops in between, we can tell a story of being resettled, of forced migration, of needing to move from place to place, and sometimes the cousins weren't there at the other end, and it was very difficult. Right. It's why I use that example of being cousins, because I, I, I want people to feel the strength of what it means to, to land in a place where there is opportunity. And in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there is opportunity. There's a, this is a city that is alive um, and that is growing. And that if you have an idea, you can make it happen really quickly. Um, and there is an education system which is working hard to provide the very best for its students. There is um, a city government which cares deeply about its citizens, and all of that means that when someone arrives here, they should they should feel they should feel all of that. It's in my religious book, <laughs> and it's in my personal it's in book. Ours. It's in everybody. It's in everyone's. Yeah. And and, yeah. and 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 if 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 we if we can't um, feel the feeling through the the narratives that we read about other people's experiences, then I would hope we can think about that feeling through the experiences our own ancestors experienced. For the Jews of Oklahoma, we are at at most third generation. There's probably one person who will call right now and say, hey, I'm fourth generation. Um, But uh, (laughs) uh, I just just hang up on that person. But but we are, we are, we are, we are so new to this place. My mother was born in Cuba. I I know the experience of learning a different language, of navigating a cultural uh, moment, and to 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 offer to offer a place for people as they arrive in this country. Um, I can think of no um, no greater task and no no holier task um, for a group of people to 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 take on. Absolutely, my family immigrated here in 1975. 
I was the very first one of my entire family to be born and bred as a Tulsan. So I'm the first Oki in, in my family, you know? And so I know what it felt like for them, um, for them to try and learn English and for them to try and figure out how the system works and, and for them to try and figure out. And they didn't have services for them to connect to. They didn't come in as refugees, you know? Um, and so when we travel, you know, and I've traveled with both of you internationally. And when we, when we say we're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we talk about this interfaith family, people are like, what, where Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places, Tulsa, Oklahoma, you guys are interfaith and and you guys are working together. And it's just baffling to people. It's mind blowing to people that Muslims and Jews and Christians and, and people of other faiths can have dinner together, can travel together. When my father passed, Rabbi came and you were there and Jesse, you know, everybody was there and we truly are a family. You know, that's what I feel like. It's it's truly a family. And for these new neighbors that are coming in, just like Rabbi came and said, they're our cousins and we need to do what we can to take care of them. I've noticed that both of you um, are calling them our new Afghan neighbors and it feels like mm-hmm. a deliberate choice. Um that you're using you're you're using that that specific term. Why is it important to right out of the gate call them our neighbors rather than focusing on them being refugees or immigrants or other sure. terms? Because of the way that they had to leave Afghanistan and because of our government bringing them here through a particular new program called the Afghan Parolee Program. That term parolee, I understand it is the worst term possible to call our new neighbors. Uh, but it does have legal precedence, and this was the way that they were able to get him out of there quicker instead of calling them refugees or putting them in that refugee pile. And so very early on, when we were having conversations with Catholic Charities and others, we were like, there's no way we're calling them parolees or asylees or no. whatever. We are calling them our neighbors. And um, so, you know, for us to be able to help them put whatever we can to help put their pieces of their lives back together. I mean, that's what you would do, right? You'd go next door. You'd try and help your neighbor out if you knew that they were having a difficult time. They're only our, our neighbors if we're successful. Exactly. Because if we're not successful, they're going to move. They're going to find another opportunity. They're going to yeah. have to. Um, so it's aspirational then, calling them our our new Afghan neighbors. Yes. Like we are wanting that to happen. Mm-hmm. And we are working Absolutely. towards that as a goal. I like that. Absolutely. I also think there's interesting religious connotations within... Uh, I I can say from my own experience, you know, love thy neighbor is a very important tenet mm-hmm. within yes. Christianity, and I know there are strong As versions of that. Yeah, well. I b- I believe you stole that from us. I, that's what I, I stole, thieves. stole, stole, uh, borrowed, 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 learned, yeah, repurposed, learned, learned. <laughs> <laughs> I like you repurposed. Recycled yeah. it. Recycled. Yeah. Yeah. Recycled. You resettled it. Eco friendly. We keep it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was wondering if the religious connotation by the term neighbor came into it as well. I mean, that because this is involving different religious organization and there mm-hmm. is a very specific tie to taking care of our neighbors, be they a literal neighbor or a figurative neighbor. Sure. America's a weird place where sometimes we don't know our neighbors. I've lived in parts of Tulsa where I did not know my neighbors, and I've lived in parts of Tulsa where I I very much do know my neighbors. It's a very different experience, and I always would prefer the experience of knowing my neighbors. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that's both a religious funny. tenet, but, a but, a but, a a value that we can, um, well, as Jesse, you said to aspire to, right? Like we should, we, we, we could be neighbors, um, but if we don't know each other, 
then I don't know what that's for. Yeah. I mean, going back to that religious tenet, I know each and every one of our faiths calls for us to help those in need, right? And so, and especially love thy neighbor, right? And so love God, love their neighbor. For us to be able to do that for our new neighbors, they're going to turn around and they're going to be neighbors to new people who are going to come in. And we're only as strong as our community. So building those unbreakable bonds is just key for us to have our neighbors be successful for them to be able to bring the rest of their families here or once their country gets settled for them to move back if they want to however whatever that looks like for them right i know many syrian refugees who came here they didn't want to leave but unfortunately they had to leave right they would love to go back but you know until everything's fixed they can't go back and so you know they're going to be our neighbors on the street they're going to be their kids are going to be in school with our kids let's welcome them with open arms i mean n- none of us i, I I would say could declare ourselves as like foreign policy experts, but it should be noted <laughs> that if if you're not wanting to help these people from like a a place of goodness in your heart, the other reason you'd want to help these people especially is because if we don't help the people in the countries our military is doing things in, we're not going to get any help from those people from other people in different countries going forward, and we kind of need that when we don't speak the language and don't know the culture. If you're if we're looking for a practical sort of real politique reason to help our new Afghan neighbors, that would be it. And I just feel like I someone should say it. So mm. I will say it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we know that most of these people are in the position that they're in because they helped either the U.S. or allies, right? And so um, even before any of our neighbors that came in through Catholic Charities came here, um, TU Law School asked me to help resettle a family of 19 and their son was here in Tulsa, the, the translator, the main translator was here in Tulsa. He was trying to get his mother, father, siblings, and, and you know, the rest of their family out. Um, they were on their way to the airport when the airport was bombed in Kabul. And, um, of course, they didn't get to get on that plane. Well, then his father was taken in by the Taliban. And just this last week, the elders were finally able to negotiate his release by the Taliban. I mean, it's just... It's just insane. And all of that because they helped us. I will say that I've seen so many military members um, reaching out. Hey, this was my translator. What can we do to get him out of there? Hey, this was so-and-so, you know, he was in charge of feeding us. And, you know, what can we do? It's it's really, really heartwarming to see so many of our service men and women reaching out and saying, they helped us. They saved our lives. We need to help them. I mean, we, we were there for 20 years, like a generation passed. Right. Mm -hmm. Where someone who maybe was 18 or 19 years old when they were first deployed to Afghanistan could have had a a kid on their first trip home. And that kid could have been serving by the time the war was over. Like, so those are relationships that are being built over time uh, with these translators, with these cultural liaisons, whatever they were. And just like from a basic human standpoint, you can't abandon those people when you leave. That's not that's not what polite society does. Tulsa talks about wanting to be an international city. I mean, it's, you know, our current mayor, one of his talking points, it's why he always celebrates uh, whenever we have new immigration ceremonies. We've already seen the way that, you know, the Burmese community has grown as, like you talked about, the immigration chain. We've seen other communities, smaller immigrant communities, have the same, same sort of growth. And I can only see a positive from developing a community of Afghan neighbors in Tulsa and then seeing 
that grow and what kind of cultural impact that could, you know, positive impact that could have on Tulsa. And to me is another version of why it's selfishly good for Tulsa to help, not just out of the goodness of our heart, but it makes Tulsa a better, more interesting city when we have communities like this built up in our in Tulsa. More diversity. Can, can you more imagine? Diversity. Can you imagine going out to dinner at an Afghan restaurant? I'm looking forward to that myself. I would love to try like every country's favorite bread item. Like that's a that's a lifelong goal of mine. Uh, and I'm I know I'm looking we forward ate to our it. way through both of those trips. We did. Listen, Jesse, does that mean you have a favorite? And ate and ate and ate and kept eating. I don't know if anything will ever match like the German pretzel, but uh, everything can aspire to. I don't. I don't think German you're pretzel. supposed to pick the German pretzel, Jesse. Listen, <laughs> just like how my dad bought a Volkswagen in the '60s, I will choose the German pretzel today. <laughs> To to wrap up, like so, help is going to be constantly needed over the next month, six months, years. But because our new Afghan neighbors are coming slowly, like what would you tell someone like to keep an eye out for so they know when they can be useful? What is the best way to know when groups are getting here? So what we've told people that are volunteering, we've taken their names, numbers, emails, and we've told and they've told us what they wanted to help with. Some are educators who want to help with ESL, some are social workers, some are, you know, so like the social work and all of those things, um, that's on the back end, right? Once we get them here in Tulsa, get them housed, get them clothed, get them fed, all of that, all those basic needs are met, then we're gonna start, you know, meeting those other needs. Um, so as things are moving along, we're contacting people constantly and saying, Hey, we need volunteers for this. Okay. Now it's time for this. And now it's time to transport. Right. So we've made lists of volunteers, um, for whatever it is that they're volunteering for. And we contact them appropriately. And that's kind of how we've dealt with YWCA has done that. Catholic charities is trying to do that. I'm sure B'nai Amuna is doing that. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at with trying to contact individuals who are wanting to help us. So, but like immediate needs of dropping off furniture and, you know, they can go to Catholic Charities website. And like Rabbi Kenyon said, once they have their website up, their website is very user-friendly. Hey, I've got two beds that I can donate. They have warehouse space. You know, they put it over there. They get it prepared, ready for, you know, whatever family it's going to go to. I think the number one need, if you would agree with me, Rabbi Kenyon, is trying to identify housing, um, rental properties. If you know anybody that has rental properties, um, please get it to both of the agencies because that's the number one thing is that they're going to need to do is to be able to get them in housing. I would totally agree and uh, would totally agree in terms of like how to check, how to be thinking about this and, and, and how to make yourself available. What I'd add is something I say about lots of things in life. Um, and it's like we go into a new year and we make a new year's resolution, resolution that we're going to go, I don't know, lift weights at the gym. You show up, the, show up at the gym day one, January one, and you lift and you try and bench press 150 pounds or whatever, 300 pounds. And what's going to happen? You're going to break your body um, and it's not going to feel very good. And you are not going to be ready to go back on day two, day three, day four, or day five. Um, and to think about um, whatever practice or whatever way in which you offer of yourself um, to this particular need as something that you that you build and you grow in that you start in a particular way um, and that that will unfold um, over the coming weeks and months. It's part of that marathon, not a sprint. Um, and at the end of it, guess what? There are still going to be refugees. 
because we were starting to build this office before a crisis unfolded, and our intention is that this office will remain open long after a crisis has has begun to wane. Um, and so it's really about building strength and skill and capacity um, so that we can achieve all the things we've said about our city being better and more interesting and more uh, more vibrant. And I would add, it's not just our Afghan neighbors that are coming in, right? I mean, as we look at things that are happening at our border, right? Our Venezuelan, our our Honduran, our, you know, our Guatemalan neighbors who really need our help. Um, So it's not just going to be just this one and done, just this one group. We we continue to get our new neighbors. And so just to kind of pace yourself, as Rabbi said, definitely pace yourself so you're not burnt out and so you're not strained. Just be patient with with our agencies as we work with you would be the other thing I'd add. This is Pod for Good's second anniversary slash birthday month. And uh, thank you. Um, thank you. Thank and, to ce- and to celebrate it, Chris and I are going to try to fundraise for <laughs> our new Afghan neighbors. And so that's why we wanted to talk to both of you this week. This will be the lead in to our celebration episode. Uh, yeah. A celebration of us talking about depressing topics and yeah. then trying to raise money for it. So... It doesn't uh, so I, have to be depressing, Jesse. That's true. Hopeful. Be hopeful. hopeful. That's true. Like Listen, it. I'm I'm pessimistically optimistic. That's what I've been my entire life. That's that's how I roll. Aaliyah, yeah. Rabbi Kamen, thank, thank you both for joining us today. Uh, you both are incredibly busy. I mean, one, I know Rabbi's lives are just busy in general. Aaliyah, you're always busy. So I appreciate it. Uh, Shabbat shalom, Rabbi. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Aaliyah. Rabbi came in. I'll see you on Sunday. Uh, Aaliyah, I'll probably see you also some point over the weekend because that's what happens. And (laughs) Jesse, I'll see you uh, tomorrow morning at our boxing class. That's right. I I didn't want to feel left out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Seeing everyone else. uh, Rabbi came in. uh, Chris and I joining this boxing gym is also, I feel like, goes with your analogy because we hurt a lot uh, we <laughs> keep going though but we hurt the uh, engine room the engine room so yes hmm. okay. it's is, uh downtown over in the district gunboat, that they're trying to gunboat alley i don't know what they call it uh, okay. it's okay. where the one traffic circle in tulsa is so yes okay there's two I feel like there's another one Isn't there's there another one, one at, on route 66 mingo mingo oh, route 66 yeah and there's yeah. the one in yeah. downtown that people yeah. keep running over oh that's yeah. true that's true yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Un- un- unless the water's go- unless the water's unless the going. water's going. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I lived and, above that that traffic circle. People still went over it even when the water was yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. And we also know for a fact there's one neighborhood in Broken Arrow that's got a traffic circle for some reason. Um, <laughs> very strange. Anyway, I'm excited for another group of people who I can rant to and with about Tulsa's uh, Tulsa drivers' inability to merge on highways. Sp- so, speak- actually, actually, speaking of driving, it's a it's a it's a oddly relevant topic for refugee uh, and, and non-English speakers. The state of Oklahoma is uh, does not have the, the driver's license test in any language other than English, oh. um, which uh, you can imagine uh, makes life uh, quite challenging. Um, and so if there's an advocacy issue someone wants to take up, um, that would that very right. much um, make a difference in the lives of many people who are non-native English speakers. Um, it's uh, it's it's a simple um, it's a simple translation task, um, and that's been an issue for a long time dealing with refugee populations. Um, and it's only going to continue to be a challenge. Um, and and it feels like something that can be solved. Shabbat shalom, etc. <laughs> uh, a, a a good day and good night. And, and to adieu. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you all for listening to our episode with Aaliyah and our new best friend, Dan. There are links in the show notes to all the places where you can donate your time, your money, or your things to help our new Afghan neighbors. Please, even if we do not agree on all things, help these people out. Just for one of two reasons. One, because it's the right thing to do. And two, because they helped us. So, and again, if you have not already got vaccinated, please, just do it. I don't care what your issues are. Just do it. I want to go do things again. I'm tired. Uh, as always, Telsa, get it done. And if required to, by the place you're entering or your employer, please wear a mask. A good day. <laughs>